And welcome, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, guys, gals, and non-binary pals to another episode of All the Above, the show that gives you an unstandardized take on education. I'm Jeffrey Garrett, one of your co-hosts, and I've been a middle and high school principal and a high school social studies teacher, and as always, I'm joined by Manuel Rustin, your favorite teacher's favorite teacher. I'm a high school history teacher, and this, of course, is All the Above, where we take a look at things going on in the world of education. Jeff, did you know we are available on Spotify now? Uh, yes, I did. I've already subscribed, and so can you. Nice. Uh, to find us on Spotify, just type in all the above and click podcasts, and you'll see our lovely logo in the listings there. Jeff, did you know that somebody can listen to the audio podcast, but still might want to go over to the YouTube channel to see all of our episode extras? That is fascinating. I had no idea, Manuel. Indeed, indeed. If they go to youtube.com slash all of the above, all one word, they'll find us. All right. So do that. All right, Jeff, what's on the agenda for this episode? Well, as usual, Manuel, we have a great episode for folks. Um, we're going to have, of course, our, our headlines, interesting topics, but our main segment today I'm really excited about. Uh, it is, you know, that 4th of July season. Everybody's mm. seeing red, white, and blue everywhere you go at the Indeed. grocery store, at America. Target. That's right. Uh, flags waving and all that. Um, and we're going to dive into this issue around uh, a very controversial topic in our schools, hmm. uh, having to do with the, the kind of patriotic flair of this particular season. Hmm. Uh, that being the Pledge of Allegiance. Oh. Should schools be in the business of requiring students to recite the pledge? Should students be able to opt out if hmm. they don't want to participate? Uh, we have lots of good stuff to talk about, uh, and we're going to dig, dig deep into it. You definitely don't want to miss it. All right, sounds great. But up first is our Do Now, where we take a look at recent headlines in education. Okay, now it's time for our Do Now. Jeff, how are we going to do the Do Now today? Well, man, well, you know, school is out for the summer. It is. But uh, for the unfortunate few... Mm-hmm. Summer school is in ah. session, so so we got to take attendance. We got a roll call. Ah, roll call. All right. Let's see what the first name is on our roster. Jeff, we have Michigan. Mm. State of Michigan, the the glove, right? Is that? I've never heard maybe, of that before. Maybe it's the other way. <laughs> is that what people in the Midwest? Yeah, that's the yeah, glo- that's I've, the you know the lower peninsula. It looks, uh, it looks the like glove. a glove. The only yeah. glove I know is Gary Payton. Yeah, glove, it's like a but. it's like an oven mitt. Well, all right, the oven mitt of Michigan. So (laughs) Michigan is a state that requires districts to rate teachers as highly effective, effective, minimally effective, or ineffective based on classroom observations and a measure of student achievement. So researchers at Michigan State University conducted a study looking at teacher evaluations from the 2010-2011 school year all the way through to the 2015-2016 school year and looked at a total of 97,500 teacher evaluations and found, shockingly, that teachers of color are disproportionately more likely to be rated minimally ineffective or ineffective on evaluations than their white counterparts. In fact, across Michigan, nearly 19% of black teachers and about 13% of Latinx teachers received a low evaluation rating during those years compared to just 7% of white teachers. And teachers of color in schools with a predominantly white faculty are even more likely to receive low scores. 
So Jeff, we are both teachers of color and um, clearly we're no good at what we do. All right, well, it's been nice. Thanks for joining us today, Thank folks. <laughs> uh, yeah, so I think there's a few interesting aspects of this story. So, so obviously the, the disproportionate um, ratings between white teachers and teachers of color are, right. uh, are uh, concerning. I will say that um, even though there, there are these disparate numbers, the, the, the gap between 7% of white teachers and 13% of black teachers still means we have 93% of white teachers being rated, you know, some degree of, of effective and right. close to 90% of black teachers uh, being rated the same. So I, so I do want to make sure that we're, you know, calling out the, a real the other side of things much looking. larger slice of the pie here, which is nice. almost every teacher, regardless of your race in the state of Michigan, is evaluated as effective. Right. And uh, and that is actually something that parallels trends nationally across mm -hmm. the country, which to me, in some ways, is is actually like the more one of the more interesting parts of this story, because, you know, around the, uh, the during the Obama years and the kind of um, change to federal legislation with race to the top, right. a lot of states adopted, um, you know, very uh, much more uh, theoretically at least, strict teacher evaluation systems, mm -hmm. including sometimes things like test scores or value-added measures and th things right. of that nature, right? Um, the theory being that, like, almost everybody used to be rated satisfactory and, you know, you had to, like, attack a child and steal all the money and then maybe you could be rated unsatisfactory. And the theory of this kind of po set of policies was if we evaluate people more strictly, We'll like get rid of the bad teachers and, and support the development of the good teachers and right. like education will get better. And I think uh, what we have seen is that that actually is not what has happened. What's happened is almost everybody is still rated effectively. And the places where we have gaps are actually highlighting this other major issue in our profession, which is one, a lack of teachers of color in the classroom yeah. and a pushing out of teachers of color. And two, a lot of the inherent bias that's in uh, the system that I think, you know, one can certainly make a strong argument is rearing its its yeah. face here. Absolutely, because, I mean, I'm sure somebody's listening and thinking, well, teachers of color are more likely to get some of the more difficult-to-handle students. I know when I started out in my career, um, I earned a reputation early on from administrators as being able to, quote-unquote, handle the more difficult students. Mm. Uh, but this study actually controlled for various student achievement measures. So um, the results of the study are largely based on the classroom observation component. And something that was interesting that was embedded in the study is the was a data point that showed that male teachers are more likely to be rated favorably by male administrators, which speaks to sort of the, the I guess, inherent bias in, in classroom observations. And if, if the educator is more likely to look like you, that you're more likely to um, be perhaps biased in favor of them than you are a teacher that looks differently from you. And there being so few teachers of color in the profession, or there being not enough teachers of color in the profession, and there being a predominantly white administrative um, staff in the profession uh, goes to show that perhaps a lot of these administrators when observing the classrooms of these black and brown teachers um, that that mm. that bias if you want to call it that is is kicking in which is why I say these results to me aren't shocking because um, I mean I, I guess I would be shocked if there was no um, racial bias in there at all because there's that racial bias everywhere else if you again if you want to call it bias or if you want to call that straight out racism um, from the jump. So I wasn't surprised by these results. You are right. Like this does show that most teachers, the overwhelming majority of teachers are not being rated uh, ineffective. Um, but still, I mean, that difference between 7% and 13% 
in the case of Latinx teachers or 7% and 19% in the case of black teachers. I mean, that's teachers who, you know, a lot of them maybe are using that as a justification for not coming back yeah. uh, for like this job just must not be for me. So, um, you know, I think about even if it's a couple teachers here and there that decide to leave the profession based off these evaluation results. I mean, that's 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 tragic. Yeah. I agree uh, completely. And, you know, even though the vast majority are, are still rated OK in this in this system, the the disproportionate um, consequence of this on uh, particularly people who are newer to the profession, um, particularly folks who might be working in areas where the urgency and the need for teachers of color in the classroom, as a number of uh, recent studies have helped substantiate that uh, students of color um, and frankly, white students tend to benefit from having a more uh, diverse teaching staff in their schools, right? Both in terms of their academic learning and also in terms of the kind of cultural growth and development as citizens of this world, right? And so, um, you know, if we have elements of our system that are, uh, that are actually running counter to the work that many states are trying to do, which is to recruit and retain teachers of color, yeah. you know, we have these uh, <laughs> counter forces within the same system, right? So. Definitely something uh, I would imagine Michigan is not alone on, but right. uh, but certainly something we need to address. All right, the glove. Next story. What do we have? Who do we have next on the roster? All right, man. Well, uh, you know, next up is uh, it's a it's an individual that let's just say uh, I'm not particularly fond of at this hmm. point in time. You you may have uh, heard of this story, but you might not know her name. Uh, that is Georgia Clark. Georgia Clark. Georgia Clark. Wholesome American name. Wholesome, mm. wholesome woman, I'm sure. Yes, lemonade and apple pie. Yeah, apple pie right. right there on the windowsill, <laughs> yes. of course. Hamburgers and, and football. Yes. <laughs> uh, so Georgia Clark, many of you may have heard about her because she is a veteran, or I should say, was a veteran English teacher in Fort Worth, Texas, uh, who sent a series of rather urgent tweets to one Donald J. Trump, um, at real Donald J. Trump, I believe it is, uh, saying she needed help pulling undocumented immigrants from her school. Yeah, just let that sink in for a second. Uh, she said, and I quote, anything you can do to remove the illegals from Fort Worth would be greatly appreciated. Thinking it was, of course, a private message she was sending mm. to her president. Uh, Hustling it backwards. It was instead a very public tweet that the entire Yikes. world has now seen forever. Uh, so, um, Manuel, talk to me about Georgia. Yeah, here. so I want to pull up some of these tweets because there are a lot of them. And again, she thought they were private messages to the president. Um, they were quite public. Yeah. Um, she... She spoke about the lack of protection for whistleblowers and the need to remain anonymous. Mm -hmm. And she put her full name and her cell phone number and tweeted <laughs> it out for the whole world um, to I mean, see. Isn't there just a certain degree of beautiful poetic justice in there? There, there is. <laughs> like, I hope nobody's done something crazy to this woman. No death threats, people. But like, right. if her life was a little bit miserable for a while. I'm okay. I'm, I'm good with that. <laughs> so in one of the tweets, she said, Mr. President, Fort Worth Independent School District is loaded with illegal students from Mexico. Anything you can do will be greatly appreciated. She said, Texas will not protect whistleblowers. The Mexicans refuse to honor our flag. She thought she was doing her patriotic duty, I suppose, by 
reporting or asking for help to round up so-called illegals. But what she was doing, obviously, was it was dumb just off the bat thinking that this is a private message to the president. That's, you know, but we can focus on that, but let's not even focus on it. Let's focus on the fact that um, contrary to what a lot of people believe, uh, the, Supreme, the Supreme Court has ruled that all children, regardless of citizenship status, have a right to an education. So here is a teacher trying to have students removed from the system, which violates Supreme Court orders, which violates all sorts of legislation. And um, that off the bat is just like, you've been in this profession for how long? And here you are basically asking the president to violate the law. And she might even know that it would be a violation of law, but in her view of the world and her view of uh, patriotism, perhaps she felt this is a yet another case where the president could violate the law for the better uh, betterment of the people and for making our country great again. Yeah. So mm -hmm. just foolish all around. Um, another reminder that if you are in education and there is any sense or any group of students that you feel do not have a right to an education, you yourself have to leave the classroom because every single name on your roster, regardless of who they are, regardless of where they come from, regardless of what, um, it, it's, regardless of anything, every name on your roster is deserving of a great education from you. And if you don't believe that, you got to get yourself out of the classroom because it's not the place for you. Well, I 100% agree with that. And I will just add that not that this fact necessarily is, uh, you know, makes this transgression any worse, mm -hmm. but it's just like a little more salt in the wound. So the Fort Worth uh, school district is about 30 uh, four percent uh, mm -hmm. um, Latino students, right? So uh, if you just imagine a teacher who's in the classroom thinking yeah. the kinds of thoughts that she has made very public and put out for the world to see about right. a third <laughs> of the students in the room, right? Let alone the biases she may harbor against other students of color yeah, of in that classroom, right? Um, but just like on its face, it is, uh, it's, it's ridiculous, right? It's unprofessional. It's conduct that cannot be tolerated. And uh, rightly, uh, she was, was dismissed. Yeah, uh, they, you know, got rid of her right away. They had a public hearing. Nobody spoke out in her favor, which is which is great. Um, but it does, I guess, remind me and remind uh, us all, I think, that there are a lot of teachers out there who uh, who think these things. And perhaps she was one of the ones foolish enough to put it out there in public. I wonder how many private messages have gone to either the president or local law enforcement from teachers of the exact same sort. Um, if yeah, I mean, I, I she is definitely not in isolation on this. And we reported last season about the number of teachers who, who don't believe in DACA and don't think that uh, children even under DACA protection should be allowed to stay here. So again, if you're a teacher in America and you feel these things, you feel that any child at all is not deserving of, a, of, an, edu of an education, man, just get out the profession. Just yeah. get out. Like, yes. we just don't need you. There are so many things that one can do with their life. <laughs> so many, so many great things you can do out there. Yes, yeah. yes. All right, Jeff, last name on our roster for yes. today all right also familiar name ryan smith okay is that do you have that does that name ring a bell to you ryan smith is in recent guest on all of the above who yes. uh joined us uh to talk about uh the partnership for los angeles schools yes that yes. ryan smith that ryan smith all right all right so uh california state superintendent of public instruction tony thurman has recently announced a new initiative called Closing the Achievement Gap. And this is a new working group that will explore what it will take to improve educational outcomes for the most vulnerable students in California public schools. 
and Ryan Smith was named a co-chair of this initiative. This initiative will look closely at schools throughout the state that have shown success in improving outcomes for African-American students, Latinx students, and other students of color, while also addressing the recruitment and retention of teachers of color. So Ryan Smith came on all of the above to talk about transforming struggling schools, and now he's co-chair of this statewide initiative. That's pretty awesome. Yeah, it's fantastic. Um, so, you know, for those who saw uh, our, our recent episode with Ryan, hopefully got a little bit of a taste of the, uh, you know, really just dynamic champion for equity in schools that uh, that he is. And so on a, on a purely personal level, it's exciting that uh, someone like this would be in this type of position right. to have great impact on, uh, you know, state education policy. Um, I will also say, and this might be something that uh, some of our, our viewers and our listeners may not necessarily know or understand about California, that is somewhat unique. So the state of California is, unlike most states in the country, a majority minority state. And in particular, when we uh, think about the, uh, and I get the, you know, colonialist tongue twisting that that phrase implies, but... <laughs> Given that, we are, given that we are here in America, that's what we'll call it for now. Uh, and uh, in particular, in the public schools, um, by themselves, Latinx students represent the majority yes. of students mm -hmm. in California's public schools. And that doesn't even include the um, African-American, uh, Asian, Pacific Islander, Native American students, right, um, who represent uh, the significant majority of students in our public schools. So unlike a lot of the dynamics around um, you know, around the country where the where the situation tends to be the majority group is is white and right. the minority groups are, uh, you know, various populations of, of students of color. Um, you know, California is operating in a context where Latinx students and communities are both the majority numerically, but also uh, the minority in many ways in terms of political power, in terms of right. Uh, you know, financial power and influence in terms of, you know, the issues that come along with immigration status and marginalization, um, you know, and certainly being uh, still a language minority in terms of the dominant language in schools. Right. And so, uh, so there's a lot of really complex issues here because we have uh, the majority population that still struggles with a lot of the like disproportionate impacts of a historically racist system, right? Um, but also, uh, commands a great deal of attention because they are a very large group. Yeah. Uh, and then we have many other smaller minority groups that are also still struggling with a lot of those same uh, equity issues. And so, uh, you know, it's it's a complex racial landscape that we're talking about and one that I think, uh, you know, someone like Ryan is, is well poised to help enter and I think bring some, hopefully some clarity to the direction of both the, the state superintendent of instruction, uh, Tony Thurman, and uh, our new governor, uh, Gavin yeah. Newsom. Yeah, so a few things. Um, first of all, I wonder if the woman mentioned in our last story, Georgia Clark, um, will be sending um, anonymous public tweets to <laughs> Ryan Smith about this majority-minority uh. problem in California and that something needs to be done about it. Uh, secondly, uh, Ryan sat down for a Q&A with um, LA School Report, which we'll link on our website, where um, he, he discusses a lot of, of, of these concerns that Jeff brought up, but also sort of the, the vision for the path forward for, for how to close um, what's called the achievement gap in this initiative, but what he and many others refer to as more of an opportunity gap, because this isn't something where um, the, the students themselves are the problem, it's something where the opportunities that are presented to them, um, that's where the uh, systemic inequity lies. So he, um, he has a lot to say 
about that in his Q&A, which we'll link on our website. Also, I think it goes to show that um, all the above is, is, is a place where we really bring in some of, some of the, the top dogs in education. And appearing on all the above just might be, you know, I don't know, there might be some, some link between this and uh, future <laughs> career, uh, career moves, um, you know. I, you know, one can certainly make that argument. The AOTA bump, yes. we could call it. That's, yeah. that's what we'll call yeah. it. <laughs> Uh, yeah, Elizabeth Warren, Bernie, uh, come Kamala, you want to come on AOTA and talk education policy? Come through. Let's do it. <laughs> All right, folks. So that about does it for today's Do Now. Up next, we'll have our show and tell where Jeff has a special message about the Pledge of Allegiance. Mm. So, uh, so stay tuned. It's that time of year when red, white, and blue becomes the colors of everything, from picnic food to socks and t-shirts. But what about our schools? What role should patriotism play in the education of our nation's public school children? I think there are 31 words that perhaps more than any other dramatize the tension between freedom of speech, freedom of religion, separation of church and state, and calls for patriotism and national unity. And they go like this. I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the republic for which it stands, one nation, under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. That's right, the Pledge of Allegiance. In court cases and principal's offices, the issue of whether or not schools should compel students to recite the pledge has remained a controversial issue to this day. Some have argued that requiring students to recite the pledge amounts to forced political speech, which violates the First Amendment. Others have argued that the phrase under God amounts to unconstitutional state endorsement of religion. And others have argued that the state requiring the pledge in schools is reminiscent of the practices of totalitarian regimes like Nazi Germany or North Korea and is distasteful, even if not technically illegal. And of course, there have been powerful forces who have argued in favor of the pledge, including the U.S. Congress, many U.S. presidents, and national civic organizations. And would you believe that the full legality of states requiring the Pledge of Allegiance in schools is actually not yet clearly decided, and that there are widely varying laws on the books from state to state? Some states require that schools offer the pledge to students each day. Some states protect that option, but allow local districts to manage those requirements. Some states allow it, but protect students' right to abstain. And some states don't mention it in the law at all. So, before we dive into discussing this fascinating topic, let's take a step back and review a brief history of the pledge and how these 31 words came to be a part of many students' experience in public schools. First, in September of 1892, the pledge, written by Francis Bellamy, who was an ordained minister, was published in a youth magazine as part of an effort to instill national unity and celebrate the 400th anniversary of Columbus discovering America. In 1942, the pledge is officially recognized by the U.S. federal government. The pledge did not contain the words under God in its original form. Those words were actually added in 1954 during the early stages of the Cold War as an overt attempt to defend against godless communism. 
Over the next 50 years, the pledge would be adopted as a requirement in most states to be recited daily in public schools. Fast forward to the early 2000s and a series of court challenges are brought claiming the pledge violates the First and 14th Amendment protections. The Supreme Court ultimately rules that the words under God do not need to be removed from the pledge as they don't represent a government endorsement of religion. Long story short, case law seems to suggest that while students cannot be compelled to recite the pledge, states and schools are allowed to offer the opportunity for students to recite the pledge. And in all, 32 states in this country have laws on the books that specifically allow students to opt out. 15 states have laws that are either unclear on the matter or delegate that choice to parents. And three states have no laws regarding the pledge in their schools at all. So, in a nation that prides itself on being a beacon of democracy, should the Pledge of Allegiance be practiced in our public schools? Should teachers and school administrators be in the position of encouraging or even coercing students to recite a claim of political allegiance and patriotism in America's classrooms? So if you're listening to the audio podcast, I think it's important for you uh, to know that I did change my tie out for this segment. And I'm wearing my American flag tie, which was gifted to me by a student. Shout out to uh, Kari. Um, I got a couple years ago and I'm wearing this tie because um, clearly we have a left wing liberal extremist <laughs> sitting next to me on this show. And I want it to be clear to everybody that um, I love America. I don't know about my co-host. Ah, I, I question, though, between the two of us, who's been called a libtard? Uh. <laughs> I have been called that. I have been. I have. OK. Yeah. Um, so in all seriousness, I really appreciate that you're bringing up this topic because I entered the profession in the early 2000s. And I remember a lot of talk at the time about the pledge. And maybe it's because the uh, cases that you uh, mentioned in your in your uh, talk. But um, there was a lot of discussion about the pledge at the time. And I feel like it's been quite a few years since I've really heard anybody in education circles talk about the pledge and its place in American schools. So I do want to start with just a clarifying question. Um, Jeffrey Garrett opens up his own school. We already know it's going to have a dress code based on previous episodes. Um, <laughs> does your school have a Pledge of Allegiance moment? Uh, so um, I think my technical answer to that would be as an educator, I will follow state education code. Of course. Uh, as, a, as an individual in this society, as a person of good conscience, I could not compel uh, students to participate in the in the Pledge of Allegiance. Um, my very firm belief on this issue mm -hmm. is that I think the pledge has no place in public schools whatsoever. Um, apart from any individual student who might want to take it upon themselves to recite the pledge, the same way that a student might take it upon themselves to want to engage in prayer or meditation or something, you know, that's fine. But um, yeah. I think as, a, as an arm of the state, um, schools have no place in uh, pressuring, requiring, mandating uh, students to recite the pledge. Um, all right, so that's interesting uh, on a few levels. Number one, I mean, I think it's um, clear, I think, hopefully to, to everybody that most states don't force it in terms of you being sent to the principal's office for not um, reciting the pledge in the morning. And at least in California, um, you know, I've been, my whole teaching career aside from student teaching has been in California. And I've been at schools that 
um, would read the pledge over the intercom and students would stand. Um, some students would stand, some wouldn't, but they weren't compelled or forced to stand. So I think it's clear, I, I hope it's clear to um, most of our audience that um, you're not in favor, and neither am I in favor of, of forcing students to stand and recite the pledge or be written up or sent to the principal's office or something like that. But in terms of having a moment, let's say first few minutes of the school day where it is uh, either recited over the intercom or individual teachers recite it and those who want to stand and recite it can and those who don't, don't. Um, are you against having that specific moment in the school day where the pledge is really like the the, the topic or the focus of those couple minutes. Yeah, I am, and okay. uh, I'll explain why. So I think uh, I think almost everyone, apart from like the true fascists among us, mm -hmm. um, would be in favor of a policy that does not force someone to say something like the Pledge of Allegiance that right. they don't want to say, right? So hopefully we at least all have some kind of common ground on on that issue but to me where where things are really uh, nuanced and problematic is that we don't really operate in a world in which you know students uh you know are are mandated by threat of punishment of some kind to mm -hmm. say the pledge of allegiance although there have been some interesting cases that have popped have up been. where there's been some tension around that but policy wise that's typically not the case in in right. our society the real issue is um if we, uh, the principal or a student or a teacher gets on the intercom at 8 a.m. every morning and says, all right, everybody, now's the time for the pledge, right? Mm -hmm. The very implicit and very direct message in, in that PA announcement as a school is it is your job to pay attention, it is your job to follow the directions that are being given, and if you don't, you are somehow not a, a, a upstanding member of this community. Right. And so particularly when that message is one that is conflated with, your loyalty to the country, your, you know, b being someone who has common beliefs in things like freedom or, you know, democracy, yeah. right? And I also believe that there is no actual connection between the Pledge of Allegiance and any real belief in freedom or democracy, but that's probably a topic for a separate show. Um, but I think in, in a school, we have to be mindful of the fact that what gets airtime and what gets promoted as the message of the school comes with the weight and the pressure of the school, right? That's not the same thing as saying, it's recess, it's free time, you can do what you want. And these kids over here are gonna go say the Pledge of Allegiance because they wanna say the Pledge of Allegiance as a fun activity yeah. while the other kids are on the jungle gym or whatever, right, or playing basketball. Um, that's not what's happening. It is a, it's a compelled activity that you then have to opt out of and then mm -hmm. carry the weight and responsibilities of being the one who opts out. And if you layer on your status as, say, uh, a Muslim mm -hmm. or a Jehovah's Witness or some other religious minority in this right. country, or if you layer on your status as a, a black person, right, um, or someone who doesn't want to stand during the Pledge of Allegiance because of whatever political beliefs you hold, right. um, you know, that comes with a lot of threat of being ostracized and, and excluded in a way that I think is, is really problematic. All right, and I, I hear you on that. I for one, I'm thinking about the case in Florida that received national attention when a student was, ended up being arrested, an 11-year-old kid um, who didn't stand for the Pledge of Allegiance. Apparently, it was a substitute teacher, and it was time for Pledge of Allegiance, and student didn't want to stand. He said something about it being racist or America being racist against black people. The substitute teacher apparently tried to force him to stand or got on him about it, and then it escalated and it became a th situation where he was 
um, disciplined and eventually arrested, an 11-year-old kid, um, and the pledge was was at the center of it. I like that you, um, in, in that case, the school uh, clarified after the fact that they don't force their students to recite the pledge, but the substitute apparently didn't know that and, and felt that the student should be forced. I like that you clarify that even if it's not forced in the sense of a student, you know, being disciplined for not standing, it is forced in the, the quiet way of look around and who's not standing and let's, you know, uh, build our own uh, impressions about that person for not standing. You could think about the NFL example, of course, and the NFL didn't have any rules saying that players had to stand for the uh, national anthem. One player chose not to stand, and it became this whole big kerfuffle. Like, technically, no, he didn't have to stand. However, him not standing became this whole big I, thing. I like that use of the term. Kerfuffle. Kerfuffle. Yes, that is the word of the day. <laughs> uh, kerfuffle. Yes. Don't ask me to spell it because I would not be able to. <laughs> Um, so yeah, so not having so even if on the books technically students have the choice on whether to stand or not, depending on the situation or depending on the school or the community, you know that choice to not stand could be a really heavy choice for a youngster to make. And if the school doesn't offer any guidance to teachers for how to um, help navigate that situation to help defend and protect students who are maybe in that particular school in the minority of students who don't want to stand or don't want to recite the pledge. Um, if the school isn't doing that to make sure their educators know how to sort of handle these situations, then you are going to be left with students uh, in that rough spot of, of do I stand, even though maybe my parents told me not to, but I don't want to be ostracized. I don't want to be um, called out of my name during recess or whatever. So, um, so I agree with you on that. Now, the issue with the pledge itself is your issue more with the concept of pledging allegiance to a country generally, or is it the wording and the, the under God part? Because the under God part received a lot of attention, yeah. um, but you know, in terms of the pledge as a whole, uh, it sounds like that's where your, your problem isn't the wording of the under God, but it's really the... Well, I would say my, my problem is with both. I, okay. I think you know, in its totality, mm -hmm. I, I, I find it problematic. So the, the parsing out of individual phrases is only one small piece of the larger thing. Right. I fundamentally disagree with the Supreme Court that the idea that we are compelling students to say under God, which for sure carries with it the loaded assumption that we are God, yeah. you know, loving religious people in contrast to the evil empire of the godless communists, right? right? Like the intention and the actual language is not unclear at all, even though it is, of course, not endorsing any particular religion, but we have polytheistic religions, right? Yeah, what do right. Hindus think about under God? Right. Um, we have atheists. We have people who are non, uh, you know, um, are agnostic, right? And, and right. maybe have a different definition of uh, spirituality. And so I think that phrase is, of course, problematic. And in my mind, of course, a violation of what the First Amendment should be about. Um, and is definitely an example of the state establishing religion in some manner. Right. However, my larger issue with it is really more at the kind of um, like larger philosophical level. If we're a secure democracy, if we're if America is as good and as great as it says it is, as we right. say we are, then we shouldn't have to force young kids to salute a, a, the flag in the corner of the room every day in order to get people to believe it. Yeah. We should be able to have people experience it, feel what it is, learn about it, understand what it is, and emerge from that process saying, yes, I have allegiance to right. this country because I believe in what it's about, right? And I think the existence of the pledge actually reveals uh, the kind of dark underbelly of our nation, which is we have not been as great as we think our values are and should be. 
And uh, and so for that reason, I fundamentally think it's it's a problem to compel people to to pledge allegiance, and that a real mature democracy wouldn't have to do that, wouldn't feel insecure because we're not doing that. All right, and there's no reason why uh, households couldn't recite the pledge in their own household, sure, if that's their belief. But yeah. having schools, obviously. Um, um, uh, dictated by the government have this time during the school day where the pledge is a thing that's definitely a, a sort of a where we cross the line of the government sort of infringing upon people's individual yeah. liberties to uh, and if you love America um, that love should probably be best expressed in your civic engagement not in reciting scripted words that you're forced to stand up and recite or else you'll be you know receiving a talking to from your classmates or something. I agree with you there. If I were to open my own school uh, right now, the Pledge of Allegiance honestly wouldn't be part of it. Not because I have a very strong opinion against it. It's something that I honestly haven't really thought about. Um, it's been quite a while since I've recited the Pledge of Allegiance. I, ha I was at a city council meeting where they asked me, they're like, Rustin, recite the pledge, you know, to open up the meeting. And I wasn't expecting that. And I recited it, but there was definitely a, a bit of questioning in my head of like making sure I got the words right. Cause it had been so long since I've verbally recited the Pledge of Allegiance. I see it as something that, um, again, like if we are talking about, especially the fact that you brought this up in this day and age where our political climate is is extremely intense, um, I think we really need to talk about how do we help students learn how to be civically engaged and how to have constructive criticism of the country and help be part of the solutions to make our country better versus just uh, pretend patriotism. And that pretend patriotism comes with all the red, white, and blue everywhere and shutting down uh, voices that seem to criticize either the president or this policy or that policy. That pretend patriotism, um, which is, lies in the direction of fascism, uh, of fascism, that's something that we definitely have to target and make sure uh, we address. But this, like, having students feel that they have to stand and face the flag and recite uh, something that was written to celebrate the 400 year anniversary of Columbus so-called discovering America. Yeah, that, that's definitely problematic. Uh, I'd be interested in hearing what other educators have to say who are listening or watching this video because I think different schools and different districts have their own, I guess, sort of culture or tradition around the pledge. And I, I'd like to hear from any teacher that feels that they themselves maybe feel the, the pressure from administration or from whoever to make sure their students are standing during the Pledge of Allegiance. Uh, Cause I'm sure there's teachers out there who uh, agree with you and um, kind of feel that sort of like, I agree, but I don't wanna raise a you know kerfuffle mm -hmm. over this. Yeah, yeah. And I'm sure there's teachers who totally disagree with me. And oh, for sure. Feel that I am, Georgia Clark am now the enemy of the state. Georgia Clark uh, is So we want right to hear now. from you too. But, um, you know, it's, it's a fascinating topic for sure. Yeah, definitely. All right, Jeff, thank you for bringing that up. As, as, as always, helping uh, build the context around a topic that uh, so many people have opinions about but don't quite know sort of the history and the road of how we got there in the first place. So thank you very much for that. Up next is our class dismissed. All right, folks, it's about that time for our class dismissed, where we like to shout out people doing great things in the realm of education. And this week's class dismissed goes out to Emmett J. Conrad High School valedictorian Ruha Hagar. You may have seen video of her valedictorian speech, which was cut off right in the middle by her principal. In her graduation speech, she's quoted as saying, to the kids that were murdered in senseless mass shootings, to Trayvon Martin, Tamir Rice, and all the other children who became victims, and then it just falls silent. 
Um, if you look at the video, which you're probably looking at now, if you're watching the video version of this episode, you see her principal uh, sitting in the background signaling for the mic to be cut off. As soon as she mentioned um, those names of unarmed black kids who were killed. So the principal, uh, I don't know how to say his name. I'm going to try. Do you know how to say that? Uh, Give don't. it a shot, Jeff. Uh, Temiskin Asmerum. I, I would be willing to bet that's I'm not correct. I'm sure but I hey, did not do that name honor, but we the tried. principal of Emmett J. Conrad High School. Yeah, so he um, gets up, taps a microphone, and then proceeds with graduation, uh, seemingly acting like it was a technical glitch as if he himself hadn't asked for the mic to be cut off. So Hagar tweeted, my valedictorian speech was cut short because I said the names of black children who had become victims of police brutality. Our principal signaled for my mic to be turned off as soon as I said Trayvon Martin and Tamir Rice, and he played it off as a technical difficulty. Pathetic. She says she also wanted to talk about kids across the globe affected by war, famine, persecution, and child labor in order to remind her classmates that they have an obligation to their community and the world at large. So she was out there speaking up for these victims of police brutality, and she got cut off for doing it. Man, Jeff, what's, what's going on? So first of all, I want to give serious props to Ruha. Uh, indeed, she indeed. actually completed her speech in her own digital post online yeah. that went up on social media. So you can, we'll put up the link. You can oh, check sure. out the, the remainder of the speech that was cut off. And I have to say, like, we're trying in school to raise socially conscious, globally conscious young people. Indeed. There's nothing that she said that's particularly controversial. There's a few right. things she said that are hard truths. Like in this country, we kill young black children without any repercussions. Right. But that's, that's just looking in the mirror. And so uh, the fact that they cut her off for, for saying this, I think, is really tragic, taking her moment as, uh, you know, someone who's worked incredibly hard to be the valedictorian of her high school and to deliver this really powerful, important message. So I just want to say props to Ruha. Indeed. I really appreciated your speech. We need more young people like you who are using um, your platform, whatever way it exists, to, to call out injustice and to, to speak truth to power. So congratulations. Class of 2019 at uh, Emmett Conrad High School. Absolutely. And congratulations, Ruha, on a great speech. I mean, here she was exercising some civic engagement in terms of uh, calling for her classmates to help do better to improve this uh, this country and this world. And that's that's exactly what like you she want had in Pledge a speech, of Allegiance, right? she wouldn't have been cut off, I yeah, bet, for the Pledge it, of Allegiance. Oh, she would have just exactly. recited some words yes. that spoke about liberty and justice Wave, for all. Waving flags and everything. Yeah, yeah. But actually like being specific <laughs> about how to bring that justice for all or just calling for there to be justice, cut it off, sit down. It's, cold, it's cold world out cold there. Cold world. Yeah. All right, folks, uh, thanks so much for joining us today. Uh, as always, you can find all of our content on our website. That's aotashow.com. Again, aotashow.com. And we are everywhere online. Everywhere. Um, we talked about our podcast is now up on Spotify. Um, super easy to find. Just type in the name of the show, all the above. Um, hit search. It'll pop up for you. Um, please subscribe, follow us, like our posts. Uh, it might sometimes seem like these, like these are just small gestures, but each one of these small gestures has a big snowball effect and, uh, effect and helps us get the word out about the show. So if you like what you see, please let us know and share it with your friends. Uh, we really appreciate it. Uh, so thanks for joining us, and we will see you next time on All the Above.